Well, welcome to Village Bible Church again, and I'm Pastor Steve Lombardo, one of the pastors here, and I am honored and privileged to uh, bring the word this morning, and uh, thankful for Pastor Tim to uh, share the pulpit with uh, Seven Deadly Sins, and uh, I'm not all that excited about the topic today, uh, just to be straight up with you, um, because it's a sin that's in my heart, uh, the sin of envy, and uh, one of the things that we've been dealing with as we talk about sin in this series is that God calls his people to holiness. God is love, but nowhere in scripture does it say, uh, love, love, love is God. God is merciful, but nowhere does it say, mercy, mercy, mercy is the Lord God Almighty. God is wonderful and forgiving, but nowhere does it say, forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy, and the word says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the superlative. That's the best. God is holy and he calls his people to holiness. But we have sin. And as we've learned in this series, sin is literally missing the mark. Sin is not hitting the bullseye. It's not even hitting the target. It's it's missing the whole thing. And so now we're lost in sin. We're struggling in our sin with no hope of beating our sin. And that's the joy then that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of God in him. And so we take joy in that promise this morning, but we're going to go to some deeper and darker places before we come back to the joy that we have in the Lord. And I pray that God would bring conviction to your heart as he has to mine. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father. I thank you for your words that you've given uh, to us. And I ask, Lord, that you would be our teacher this morning, Holy Spirit. That my words uh, would be forgotten, but your word would go forth in power. And you would challenge us and convict us of sin and change us uh, for our good and for your glory this morning, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. How have Christians dealt with this problem of sin? Historically, uh, in two major and general ways. Let me describe it this way this morning. First, in a, in a legalistic way. Legalism says, um, I'm going to create some rules and regulations to help me not to sin. And so I'm going to have a list of do's and don'ts. I'm going to have my checklist. All, all in the hopes that I can be disciplined unto godliness. That's what scripture calls us to be. To be disciplined unto godliness. And so we take serious the fact that we're to be holy like God is holy. First Peter chapter 1 verse 16 quotes Old Testament. Be holy as I am holy, God says. So in order to do that better, I'm going to take a legalistic approach. I'm going to have a checklist to make sure I'm on the straight and narrow. Now there's nothing wrong with rules and regulations. The problem with legalism, though, comes in our relationship with others. We might see somebody who has a different set of lists, or they don't have a list really at all, and we judge others not according to God's word, but we judge them according to our legalism, to our lists of do's and don'ts. Let me give you an example. Take, for instance, a person who was uh, saved out of uh, a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And rock and roll was a big part of their former past life. Then Jesus met them, saved them, changed them, 
And now they have some rules in their life. One of the rules is they're not going to listen to any rock and roll music anymore because they know that that's a mark of their old life and they also know that they might feel tempted in some ways to that past life. So for them, their rule is not to listen to that music. Now, that's fine. The problem comes in, however, to someone else who doesn't have that background and who likes to listen to rock and roll music. Not evil, sinful rock and roll music, but secular music. And so um, the problem can come is when that person looks to the other person and says, you're not even a Christian, or I would question where you are with God. That's the problem with legalism. Now we go to the other end of the spectrum, and you have the libertine folks, okay? The libertine people who say, well, I'm forgiven by God. Doesn't he forgive me of my sin, past, present, and future? as a Christian. So because I'm forgiven, because Jesus paid and died for all of my sin, I'm not going to worry too much about sin. I'm going to go out and live my life. And if I happen to bump into a sin, well, big deal. Jesus has forgiven me. Now, the problem for that is libertine approach can lead us to grow lazy in our approach to how we deal with sin and our pursuit of holiness takes a back seat to our pursuit of freedom and it actually can hurt our fellow christians take for example in first corinthians chapter eight the apostle paul is talking to the church there and they have an issue the issue is that there are some people that are eating food that has been sacrificed to idols and then there are other people in the church that Uh, that are not eating that food and they're offended by that fact and so here's what paul writes he says therefore as to the eating of food offered to idols we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no god but one for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords yet for us there is one god the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one lord jesus christ through whom we are all things and through whom we exist however Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So it's not a big deal. You can eat the food, whether you eat it or you don't eat it. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't make any difference with your relationship with God. But be careful... Because there's some people that are going to be hurt by that. And so libertine folks need to be careful that they don't slide into laziness, but they would pursue holiness and they would give up their freedoms for the the sake of others. So we have the legalistic approach. We have the libertarian approach. We probably see positives in both and we probably want to fall somewhere in the middle. And God help us as we look to do that here as we uh, talk about envy but the big truth that we should all be in agreement with no matter where we find ourselves in the spectrum is this that sin must be exposed and dealt with and destroyed in our life that's what we read in chapter romans chapter 8 verse 13 that we would put to death the sins of the flesh or the deeds of the body to expose sin and to deal with it today but if you're like me Um, We don't do that with sin, do we? Rather than expose sin and deal with sin, we would rather hide sin and let it sit. And that gives the enemy a a stronghold in our life. 
when we keep things hidden. We don't want to expose it because that's going to that's make me vulnerable. People are going to see my sin. I don't want to bring that to the light. I'm going to hide it and I'll deal with it. And I'll take care of it, but I'm going to hide it. And the devil loves that because then he's got something on you of that hidden sin in your life. Let me read to you from 1 John chapter 5 or chapter 1 verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Go against your natural inclination to hide and not deal with it. Expose your sin to the light. The devil has no power in the light. As you expose yourself and you deal with your sin, you have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses you. Oh, that God would help us today, even as we talk of envy, that we would deal with ourselves and our sin. So today, here we go. We come to the sin of envy. And here's what I want to do. I want to start by defining what envy is. Second, let's look to the scriptures and see some of the different ways that the sin of envy hides itself. And then finally, let's commit to putting to death the sin of envy in our lives. So let's start here. Number one, if we want to achieve victory over the sin of envy, we must, number one, define envy. Let's define it. Here's what I came up with. Envy is the feeling of sorrow at the blessing of others. Envy is the feeling of sorrow at the blessing of others. Envy is not jealousy. Tim preached a sermon back in the book of Proverbs about the difference between envy and jealousy. They're two different words in in our Bibles. And envy is not jealousy. Jealousy is not always a sin. Jealousy, in our vernacular has to do more with things that we have and so it can be a good thing like god is a jealous god now when we think of of jealousy in a in a in a way that is sin then that doesn't make sense but we think of it in a good way is this god is jealous for his own glory because he created all that there is he is first in everything and his very being demands that glory and so god is jealous for his glory I can be jealous of my wife. My wife can be jealous of me. Not like a high school boyfriend and girlfriend where you're, you're trying to control one another or anything like that, but as one before God in marriage, we've come together. We're one. I can be jealous of her. She's mine. She can be jealous of me. That's not a sin. Envy, however, envy is always a sin. Envy is the feeling of sorrow at the blessings of others. Now, it's not a feeling of sorrow to those people that are experienced, whatever that is. It's a self-pitying sorrow that you feel when you observe the blessings that others are receiving. Envy is pervasive in our society. Just as it was in the early church, as it has been for all of human history, Paul writes... In his letter to the church in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, anger, 
rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Envy is part and parcel to who we are as sinful human beings. For example, in our day and age, in our culture, it's so entrenched that we can see it in uh, some of the things that we do in our everyday life. Take, for example, uh, social media. So whether it's Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter, uh, any, any platform like that, uh, they're all mass producers of sin. Okay? Think about it. Man, he just told all these Facebook users that mass producers, and I know Facebook can be good and you can catch up with people and you can see pictures and stuff, but let me just show you how it's a big time factory for sin. Okay, ready? Um, so you go do something and uh, you're really happy about it. You bought a new toothbrush and uh, so you post a picture of that and you're proud of it. You're feeling pride over something that you have and you want to post that because you want others to know how good your life is. And so those other people come and they get on it and they see it and they experience the sin of envy. And they are desirous of the thing that you have. And so they feel envy. They feel a certain sorrow that they're not in that position. It's a factory of sin. This self-pitying sorrow that comes, it rises up Because in our own hearts, we say, that should be me. I should have that. I should experience that. Why not me? But it's not just technology that makes this so much a part of who we are. It's also just the way we've been inclined since the fall. That's the way that we're made. There wasn't much technology back in 1992 when I tried out and made my first traveling baseball team. But I'll tell you what, there was a lot of envy because this is my first team with good players, and guess what? I didn't get to start. I didn't get to start, and the kid ahead of me got to start, and I saw him, and did I cheer him on? Oh, yeah, outwardly, yeah, let's go. Inwardly, I hope he breaks his ankle. Because I should be there. The coach should have me in there. That's envy. And I had a sorrow that I wasn't a starter. Nothing to do with social media. It's the way that we're inclined Let's go this. Secondly, envy is a powerful weapon in the hands of the enemy. Listen to the words of Proverbs 27, verse 4. Jot down this reference. Proverbs 27, verse 4 reads, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before envy? Wrath. Anger. Hard to deal with. It's nothing like envy, though. Who can stand? Now, why is this? Well, it's because envy can masquerade as justice. Envy is a shapeshifter. They're getting a raise. They're getting a job promotion. I work hard. I put in the time. I should be in that position. Envy masquerades as justice. This is the devil's specialty. It's deception. It's that the feelings that you have are actually right feelings. And and the devil would seek to deceive you in that way and, and lead you down the path of envy. The sorrowing sin. Even back in the garden, the devil would say to Adam and Eve, did God actually say, you deserve that. The devil blinds the eyes of the truth of the gospel to unbelievers, but the devil also 
deceives believers into thinking that the feelings that we have are not sin. No. You deserve that which you do not have. Leading you to even question God Almighty for having you in that position. Irma Bombeck captured the heart of envy with this prayer, and it's funny. Lord, if you can't make me thin, at least make my friends look fat. Envy would cause us to say, no one should be richer than me. No one should have more success. No one should be blessed more by God than I am. Envy is the great equalizer. It allows us to drag others down to the misery of our lives where we're at. Envy. The third part of defining envy this morning is this. Envy tends to flourish close to home. Close to home. When I was in the 80s playing Little League Baseball, sorry, baseball theme, um, I looked up to Major League Baseball stars, Ryan Sandberg, Jody Davis, Andre Dawson, sorry, 1980s Cubs, and uh, I loved them. I wanted to be like them, but I didn't envy them. I wasn't filled with sorrow that they were there and I wasn't there. No, I looked up to them. That was good, but it was the people on my team. It was close to home where envy reigned. You might not be envious of Bill Gates, But you could be envious of the cousin or the family member who married into money and is going on all these trips that you see, and it's not you. Here's top five indicators of close-to-home envy. See if you've experienced these, okay? Number one, top five indicators that you are experiencing close-to-home envy. Number one, we temper our compliments with the word but. Oh, man, he's a great guy, but... uh, Yeah, she's wonderful, but... Number two, we walk the other way to avoid congratulating a friend at their good favor. There's so-and-so. Something good happened, I'll go the other way. Number three, you don't walk the other way because it's not the Christian thing to do, but there's a knot in your stomach as you go and congratulate that person through your clenched teeth. Envy. Close to home. Number four, You can't bear to hear your friends complimented in your own presence. And number number five, we secretly regret that our friends have succeeded where we have not. Outwardly, maybe congratulatory, but there's a certain sorrow of their position and yours. So if we want to achieve victory over the sin of envy, we must here, number two, observe its subtleties. Subtleties. I had to look it up. What does that mean? It's something that we just don't notice uh, offhand. We examine it and we see envy is very subtle in the way that it masquerades and the way that it enters into our life. So we're going to look at three examples from the scriptures this morning to help us to identify, to observe how envy works so that we can destroy it. Turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Here we have the nation of Israel. They've been let out of slavery in Egypt. God had done miraculous things to bring them out of their slavery. He had taken his people. Now they're on the way to the promised land, but they have to go through a journey. And this journey is hard, and the journey is difficult. And we come to Numbers chapter 11. Verse 1, and the people complained 
in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of the place was called Tabera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. They're complaining. They're not happy with their circumstances. The trip isn't going like it should. Then what happens? Not only was their journey difficult and they're complaining, but they they began to forget about the bad things that happened in Egypt. They forget that they were slaves and they look back with rose-colored glasses on their circumstances back in Egypt. Look at verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. All this food, we had fish for free. You were slaves. And now all we have is this manna. Miraculous bread of heaven given to us. We're sick of it. Oh, they're envious of their past circumstances. In the circumstances of life, their envy rises up. And what was God's reaction then? It wasn't just that they were complaining or that they were envious of their past circumstances. It's that this sin, this insidious sin, let them to question the God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, who led them miraculously out of Egypt through the Red Sea and was providing for their every need. They distrusted Him. They hated God, even in the way that they were reacting. And so what was God's Reaction, Numbers chapter 11, verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and the next day, and they gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, it's a lot, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kilbrath Hattava, because there they buried people who had the craving. Envious people, envious of their past life, that God would dare bring us out here and give us this manna, give us meat. God gave them meat and struck them down. Are you envious concerning the circumstances of your life? Envy is not, hear me, envy is not having a desire to do better or to excel or to work hard or to accomplish more things. That's not envy. That's good. But envy is the sorrowing self-pity that would question and be angry at God himself for allowing you to be where you're at in your life. God forgive us for envy. We also observe its subtleties in competition with one another. That's the next snapshot that we're looking at. And for that we go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. So just go to the right a little bit and you'll come to 1 Samuel. Go to verse chapter 18. We'll be reading verses 6 through 9, but here's the setup. 
Goliath is the big Philistine ruler. He's the fighter. The Philistines are fighting against the nation of Israel. Goliath's out there taunting. He's like, we're going to make this battle real easy. We're going to have one fight to determine who's the winner. So not everybody has to lose your life. Don't worry. There's only going to be two that are going to fight today. One of them's Goliath. Goliath is a giant, towering a man of war. And he's coming out and he's taunting the nation of Israel. And he's yelling at them and daring them, anybody to come and face him. He's going to wipe out anybody. And here David, young shepherd boy David, says, what are you guys all listening to this punk? stand up to him I'll fight him I'll go no no David come on now no I'm going to go fight him and so Saul says it's funny Saul's not fighting Saul says why don't you take King Saul why don't you take my armor wear that he tries it on doesn't really work he's like that's all right I'll be fine takes his slingshot goes out to fight Goliath chapter 17 verse 41 and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And he goes and he kills the giant. Philistines run. They're scattered. A great rout, a great victory for the nation of Israel. And it's at the the celebration of this that we come to chapter 18 verse 6 as they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines with songs of joy and with musical instruments and the women sang to one another as they celebrated Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands and Saul was very angry And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Envy rises up in competition. Competition can be a good thing. It can make you work hard. It can motivate you to press on and to be the best that you can be. But observe the subtleties of envy as it masks itself to Saul and it destroys him eventually that Saul would come. And they're singing praise to Saul. King Saul's receiving praise, but David's getting a little more. That should be me. He's taking over my kingdom. I'm going to kill him. And he eventually dies, wasting away in the sorrowing self-pity of envy. Who's your competitor? There's such a thing as healthy competition, but but listen, sin is crouching at your door. Remember who first said that? God said it to the first murderer, Cain. Cain, who was in competition with his brother, sibling rivalry, and he was envious 
that Abel was receiving the accolades really from God in the reception of his offering. And he was getting angry about it and envy was starting to grab his heart. And God said, be careful, sin is crouching at your door. Third snapshot from the scriptures. If we want to achieve victory over the sin of envy, we must observe its subtleties as we talk about compensation given by God. Go to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Listen to the story that Jesus tells. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house that went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day or for the day's wage, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour... So nine o'clock in the morning, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went along, going out again about the sixth hour, noon. And then the ninth hour, three o'clock, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, so right before the, the end of the work day, maybe five o'clock. They worked from six, sun up to sundown, six. Maybe about five o'clock, he went out and he found others standing there. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, go in the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard came to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a full day's wage, a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a day's wage, a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked for only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Remember, envy can masquerade as justice or as equality. And these workers are upset. And we can understand that, right? That's not fair. I worked all day. These people worked one hour. We're getting paid the same. God, Jesus, the master in the parable says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? This speaks to the very core of this insidious sin. When we envy, we're saying to God that we know best, that our way is better than His way, that things aren't fair because I'm judging them not to be fair. And we disdain God and we push away one of the greatest commandments. Jesus said to love the Lord your God with everything that you have, your heart, soul, mind, strength. And instead of loving God, we... We begrudge God. We question God. We don't love Him because He's not being fair to me. And envy rises up when God is in debt to no one. God can do whatever He will. And yet we would rise up in envy, in disdain to God Almighty. This can happen with everyone, but consider how this uh, sin affects those who are 
leading somebody or mentoring somebody. Everyone in here probably in some way, shape, or form has helped somebody, mentored somebody, brought somebody along, maybe in an official setting or not so official setting, but it's when that person who you've helped to raise up, when they succeed further than you, when they go further and farther and better things than you, and you would say, how could they have that? I poured into their life. I gave everything to them. And now they're experiencing all that success. God, that's not fair. That's sin. It's the sin of the rebellious brother, the prodigal son's brother. Prodigal son, remember Jesus told the story, he goes out and rebels and he, he lives like hell and he comes back and the father embraces him and he throws a party for the, the, the lost son is returned. And the older son, who was always faithful, who was always there, who always worked hard and stayed around, he's angry, he's envious that the father would throw a party for the rebellious jerk of a brother that I have. When I've been faithful and I know what's right and I am fair, envy masquerades as justice and fairness and equality. Are you dealing with envy this morning? I think we've defined it pretty well. I think the scriptures show us the pictures of envy and its subtleties. Are you going to turn from envy this morning? That's the third and final point. Number three, if we want to achieve victory, we must destroy envy. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So let's, by the Spirit, God help us, put to death, destroy the sin of envy. Putting to death sins of the flesh is what the Puritans called mortifying the flesh. John Owens, one of the Puritans, wrote this, The choicest believers, who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin, ought to make it their business all the days of their lives to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Since we have been forgiven of sin, Christian believers, if you've been forgiven and cleansed by, by God Almighty, you have faith in Christ, you've repented from your sin, you've turned to your sin, why would you struggle any longer in the pattern of that sin that you would be freed and you would destroy that sin that would so easily entangle you once again that we would put to death this sin? So how do we do it? How do we destroy envy? It's an ongoing process. As with all sins, it's never completed until we see Jesus. But the process, we must participate in that process. We are called to this process. Some of you today, you don't struggle with this sin as much as others. You're a very grateful person. You love to see God blessing others. And there isn't that sorrow and self-pity when you see God blessing others. And God bless you. But there's others here today that you've struggled with this greatly. Even today you're struggling right now. And you're feeling this angst rising up within you. And you soften your heart and hear what the Lord has promised to those who would turn to Him. So practically, let's just say this. Destroy envy by faith. Number one, by faith. Repentance goes along with faith. Maybe you're here today, you've never repented. That's turning from your sin. God calls you to believe in Jesus, to repent and believe in Jesus. That you would turn from your sin and go God's way. That you would live for the Lord. That you would be saved. That you would... Turn by faith to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Faith in Christ says this, I have been forgiven. 
We need to remember who we are as Christians. And when we're dealing with these feelings of envy that would rise up, we have to remember that we've been freed from sin. We've been forgiven. Christ's blood has set us free. And you can remind Satan of that. That I have these feelings and I'm tempted in this way, but I remember that I am a child of the Most High God. The blood of Jesus has cleansed me from my sin and on the grounds of the blood of Jesus, you defeat the enemy. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. On the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. But faith is also faith in future grace that says this, I will be redeemed. I will be redeemed. So in in some sense, envy is tapping into something that is wronged in your life. You've been wronged or you've been hurt. And envy is trying to sneak in that way. And, And just remember this, God is going to make everything right. God will repay. God will... He sees your hurt and he sees your insecurities and he sees how you haven't succeeded the way that you are, but he's going to care for you. You will be redeemed. There's a future redemption, a future grace that is to come where God is going to make all wrongs right, that he sees you and he loves you and he cares for you. There's a future in store for all who would believe. And my parents used to say when I would be disappointed, I didn't do something well enough or didn't succeed and I thought that I should have and I was working hard to do it. They say, just remember, Steve, the cream always rises to the top god knows that god is a good and gracious god the cream will always rise to the top the problem is it might happen in heaven and until that day he's calling you to put to death the sin of envy that would raise up inside of you and you would have faith that he's got a plan that he's in control and that his way is best even though i might not feel that way put to death destroy envy by faith And then secondly, by gratitude. By gratitude. To be thankful and grateful for what God has done. I think even in the setting of the church, it's called the body of Christ. Why the body? It's because we all have different roles. We all have different gifts. And some have greater gifts and some have lesser gifts. But they're all part of one body. It's not about equality or inequality it's different gifts and it's different measures of gifts but that we could all appreciate one another and be grateful to god that we're in a church together we have such wonderful different gifts greater gifts that we can look up and point to one and not be jealous not to be envious of that but to point to that and say god we give you glory for that blessing on that person's life and, and i'm thankful to be in the same body as that person And God, help me in my role, and I want to be satisfied in my role, but Lord, uh, thank you for all of the good gifts that you've given to your body. And thank you. I'm grateful to be a part of it. Just the little part that I have, Lord, thank you. It's hard for envy to hide in a grateful heart. It's hard for envy to hide in a grateful heart. Are you dealing with envy? today repent turn to Jesus Christ confess your sin walk in the light as he is in the light and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin we have fellowship with one another let's go to the Lord in prayer spend some time with him Lord God we give you thanks uh, for your word Lord, we, uh, we ask right now in this moment that you would be dealing with us, that you would bring, Lord, conviction of sin. If we are experiencing envy, Lord, that it even is, is rampant within our hearts, Lord, that right now, by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to confess it as sin to you. 
Lord God, forgive me for my sin of envy. Forgive my, my wicked heart. Lord, help me to be grateful for every good gift you've given me and the blessings that you give to others. So Lord, right now we, we turn to you by faith. We turn from our way, we repent, and we turn to you by faith. Thank you for the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Thank you that there is no sin greater than the blood of Jesus. Lord, remind us, even in the darkest days of sin, that your light of redemption and forgiveness can shine through, and we ask that it would. And we ask, Lord, that until that day comes that we see you face to face, that we would, you would give us the strength to continually fight the battle to destroy the sin of envy within our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.